0: My name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to the Swap podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. Recent events across the globe have served as a stark reminder of the impact of climate change. From droughts in the UK and China, to wildfires in Europe and Canada, to deadly floods in South Korea and the US, extreme weather events have become an all too common occurrence with often devastating consequences. Recognising the need for action, countries and companies around the world have made commitments to reduce their emissions of carbon dioxide. There are a number of mechanisms and strategies in use or under consideration to achieve this, but voluntary carbon markets are seen by many as a vital tool to enable companies to act on emissions they can't otherwise reduce and to channel financing to green infrastructure and technologies that can make a real difference. There is, though, a potential fly in the ointment, and that's the risk of greenwashing. How can firms be sure that the carbon credits they're buying represent a genuine and effective effort to reduce or remove greenhouse gases? How can this be verified? In short, how do you create trust in this market? We're going to explore these issues in this episode, and as per usual, joining me is ISTA's chief executive, Scott O'Malia. Scott, just how important is this issue of greenwashing?
1: Well, it's incredibly important, Nick. You mentioned the importance of trust, It's really also difficult to see how net zero targets can be met without voluntary carbon markets and to address the emissions that can't be eliminated. But the voluntary market will only work if people trust it. In other words, people need to be absolutely sure that the carbon credits that they are buying reflect the projects that will have a real impact on climate change. That means we need to ensure integrity and transparency in the verification process. Now, there have been some recent progress in this space. An independent governance body, the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Markets, or ICVCM, was set up last year. It recently published a set of core carbon principles and an accompanying assessment framework for consultation with the aim of establishing a consistent global benchmark for high-integrity carbon credits. The ultimate goal, of course, is to build trust and confidence necessary for this market to succeed
0: which brings us neatly to the topic of this episode. Our guest today is Annette Nazareth. Annette is chair of the ICVCM and was formerly operating lead of the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, a group established in 2020 by Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of England. In her professional career, Annette has served at the US Securities and Exchange Commission, both as director of the Division of Trading and Markets and later as a commissioner. She's currently senior counsel at law firm Davis Polk & Wardwell. Scott, I'm sure you've got a hatful of questions on the carbon market, so over to you. Thanks, Nick. Annette, thank you
1: very much for joining us on The Swap. It's great to have you as our guest.
2: Well, thank you so much, Scott, and
1: I'm so delighted to be here today. It's a great topic. Let's get into it. So as the chair of the ICVCM and formerly the operating lead for its predecessor, the TSVCM, can you start by explaining why voluntary carbon markets are so important to the transition to net zero?
2: Sure. Well, in a nutshell, the voluntary carbon market exists to accelerate a just transition to 1.5 degrees. It's an important complementary tool that can unlock urgently needed finance that wouldn't otherwise be available to reduce and remove billions of tons of emissions that wouldn't otherwise happen. As you probably know, the voluntary carbon market also channels finance from developed to developing countries and indigenous peoples and local communities, which as you know, are referred to as IPLCs. 90% of carbon credits are bought in the Global North, while 90% of potential natural climate solutions are located in the Global South. Carbon credits can also play an important role in funding low carbon emerging technologies and bringing them to market earlier. But let me be clear, all of these efforts have to be built on a foundation of high integrity. Scott, we need to use every tool available to us, working at full speed to address the climate crisis. The window is rapidly closing, every minute and every ton of carbon matters. and that is why the voluntary carbon market is so important.
1: Fantastic. It's as you point out, you don't get credit for good ideas here, you got to actually build something that will sequester or mitigate carbon. So that's great. The ICVCM recently launched a consultation on its proposed core carbon principles, which are due to be finalized later this year. Let me ask you, what role will these principles and accompanying assessment framework play in the development of credible standards and transparency in this market?
2: Well, we're looking to bring standardization And consistency to the market. The purpose of the Core Carbon Principles, which, as you know, we call our CCPs, and the assessment framework is to provide a credible, rigorous, and easily accessible means of identifying high quality carbon credits that create real, additional, and verifiable climate impact that has high environmental and social integrity. This will build trust. It will reduce confusion and fragmentation, and it'll pave the way for the development of spot and futures markets in carbon credits. These markets will be highly liquid, easily scalable, and will help create a transparent price signal, enabling better price risk management. Our work at the Integrity Council is focused on the supply side ensuring that credits conform to high standards around additionality, permanence, robust quantification, etc., And we're also focused on the markets for voluntary carbon credits, so how carbon credits trade. As you probably know, there are other organizations, including VCMI, that are working on standards for how corporates can use these credits as part of their transition.
1: That's a great point because I think initially there was some confusion. You do clearly have that supply side focus. They're kind of making sure that the claims around net zero, around what is carbon neutral, are robust as well, seeking to establish good common standards, which is great. And I think giving everybody some clarity around both sides is vitally important. Now, let's get into the why here. Voluntary carbon markets have been around for more than a decade. What are the problems, though, that you're trying to solve here with your core carbon principles and how will this help unlock the need for carbon reducing technologies and even nature-based solutions as well?
2: Right. Well, a key point to understand about the voluntary carbon markets is that it is, as the name suggests, is voluntary. So it's driven by private sector actors and it's not regulated by governments or financial authorities. But we feel strongly that unregulated doesn't mean that it has to be fragmented or opaque, and it certainly should not limit the potential of the market to contribute as fully as possible to securing a livable future for the planet and for everybody on it. And as you know, currently the market suffers from a lack of transparency, a lack of standardization and consistency, and that that has undermined trust in the quality of carbon credits. And this has been a key constraint on the market's ability to scale and to deliver critical finance for climate solutions. But that certainly doesn't mean that the whole market is low integrity either. It's important to note that there are a lot of examples of best practices out there, but they're not yet consistently applied across the market. And I mentioned previously the ultimate purpose of our core carbon principles and assessment framework is to provide a credible, rigorous, and readily accessible means of identifying high quality carbon credits that create real additional and verifiable climate impact that has a high environmental and social integrity. And so we think we can achieve that by establishing a definitive and consistent global benchmark for high integrity carbon credits that are based on solid science and best practice and then assessing carbon crediting programs and credit types against that benchmark and clearly identifying those that need it. So our goal is to build a high integrity, regulated like market, I like to say, based on a widely shared understanding of what high integrity means for carbon crediting programs and credit types in a framework that's workable, and establishes a clear pathway for continued improvement based on shared learning evolving science and practices and technological innovation and market developments and i think that's an important point i mean we see our efforts as sort of the 1.0 here so to speak but like all market regulation we need to be prepared to improve and refine over time based on current practices best science etc so We really believe our efforts are going to underpin trust in the integrity of carbon credits, unlock urgently needed private capital, and channel it efficiently towards real climate impact at speed and scale. But to be clear, we have to build integrity first, and if we build integrity, scale will follow. And we think the voluntary carbon market can help accelerate the uptake of emerging technologies and protect and promote nature and biodiversity. And it can also, as I said earlier, put vital funding into the hands of IPLCs, who are critical stewards of many of our key carbon sinks. And that means that the carbon market can reach its full potential in support of the goals of the Paris Agreement and the Sustainable Development Goals.
1: Okay, so... How did the sausage get made in this process? How did the ICVCM go about developing these principles? And to what extent did current trading of carbon credits influence these deliberations?
2: Well, the draft CCPs and the assessment framework were developed by the Integrity Council based on recommendations from the expert panel. This expert panel consists of 12 carbon market experts with long-standing expertise in environmental and social integrity of carbon markets and methodologies, and they were supported by a body of 11 subject matter experts with technical expertise in topics ranging from additionality and permanence of carbon credits to social dimensions related to Indigenous people and in local communities. The CCPs and the assessment framework were developed in an open dialogue with stakeholders from across the voluntary carbon market ecosystem. This was designed to ensure that the drafts published for public consultation reflect the knowledge and learnings from experts across the value chain. I think this practice was consistent very much with how we operated. For instance, when I ran the Division of Trading and Markets at the FCC, you'd meet with market participants, you'd get the lay of the land, and then you would propose rules. So we pretty much followed a consistent process with that. The current practices and frameworks have certainly influenced and informed our deliberations, and we're conscious of the need to ensure that the market continues to operate smoothly and generate finance for climate mitigation, while also increasing the standards that we see today. So it's for that reason that we're proposing a phased approach. The initial threshold for CCP eligibility is based on the existing good practices that have not been consistently implemented, but that do exist today in the market. And the full threshold goes beyond the current practice and programs will have time to level up to those higher standards that will be implemented in the future.
1: Now, the ICVCM has proposed extensive requirements for carbon credit programs. These credits and attributes are in alignment with the Paris Agreement. I think you proposed 13 requirements in various areas, and I don't want to go into those. That would take another whole podcast. But let's talk about how they're going to be monitored and upheld. What is being contemplated for the monitoring and oversight of this?
2: Sure. Well, I think we're going to act in a similar way to, again, to the regulators. We'll carry out initial assessments to determine whether the carbon crediting programs have the appropriate governance structures and assurance processes related to credit quality. And then once we determine that a program is CCP compliant, it's up to those programs and third-party validation and verification bodies to ensure that the individual projects conform to those standards. So as a body, we would anticipate conducting periodic reviews as a regulator would normally do to ensure that all this is being done properly and consistent with the CCP's But I think you could also expect that we would conduct spot checks on the basis of information received about malpractice, such as any regulator would, I guess, what you and I would call for-cause exams. So if we hear anything that we think warrants additional scrutiny, we would go back in and take a look.
1: Was that contemplated when the task force was set up that you would be the monitoring entity? You're the best suited individual with your background at the SEC and markets.
2: Well, I think that, again, is something that we'll be getting comments on. I think currently we think that we will be able to serve that function and that we'll be scaled up to do it.
1: Now, for anybody listening, you can go to icvcm.org, I believe is a website, to pull down the various recommendations and concepts for comment or review. So we won't go into that, but let me just move on to the next question. The proposed framework establishes a number of tests to create the robust market that you desire, free from double counting and greenwashing. For example, an additionality test requires that any emissions reduction or removal as part of the carbon credit should be additional, adding value or reducing by reducing carbon not already planned. In other words, it would not have occurred in the absence of the incentive created by the carbon credit revenues. Isn't that test a bit restrictive? It struck me as a bit restrictive. If we're trying to boost the investment in innovative technologies, it has to rely on this carbon revenue as your differentiator in terms of financial success of the project?
2: Well, I know we say in our consultation that we're open to all comments, but I have to say that additionality is sort of our North Star, Scott, to be sure. It's central to the value add of the voluntary carbon market as a complementary tool to accelerate climate mitigation. So additionality means essentially what you said, that the investment would not have happened without the carbon credit incentive. So if the investment would have happened anyway through some other means, then we haven't accelerated anything. So I would say that that's a pretty core principle for us.
1: But if carbon is only trading at $10 a ton or something like that. Is that the differentiator in how they're going to build these projects? I mean, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars invested in these projects, billion if you go to direct air capture. The carbon credit at $10 a ton probably is pretty insignificant in the overall scheme of things. I guess that's my concern here. So we'll have to see how the comments come back. And your point's well taken, right? We want to make these projects additive. We want to continue to reduce and eliminate carbon. But We want to make sure that many projects can qualify.
2: You talk about the pricing, and I think obviously there are issues with the pricing today. I think if you have a transparent and liquid market, both on the cash side and what I would anticipate to be futures trading in these products as well, I think you're going to see a much more important price signal develop.
1: Yeah, the outlook is terrific and the demand is outstripping supply for sure. But we just want to make sure that we get the right metrics to measure these by. We've talked a little bit about both the voluntary market, but regulation as well. Do you think additional regulation may be needed for these markets? Or do you think the strong governance and oversight that is being developed by your organization will be sufficient to create a robust and transparent market?
2: Well, that's a really good question. As I said before, our goal is to build a regulated like market. But that is not at all to say that we are opposed to regulation. To some extent, we're dealing with the hand we were dealt. I mean, this market is not regulated now and regulatory authorities don't have the ability to regulate it. The benefit, I suppose, of the voluntary carbon market is that we can move at greater speed than the regulators can, particularly because they do have some issues on authority now. And so obviously time is of the essence when we're talking about channeling capital towards the climate emergency but that said, we're very supportive of the work that the regulators are done, and I think we're working very closely with them because there are a lot of adjacencies. I think there's been enormous benefit in us keeping the regulators apprised. I've spent a fair amount of time with the CFTC and with Chairman Benham. And to the extent that the CFTC only has anti-fraud and anti-relation authority in the cash markets, the fact of the matter is they're gonna be very actively overseeing what I think will become a robust futures market, which I think is fabulous because we'll have this sort of penumbra of regulation right adjacent to what we're doing. And in building this framework, and partly it is because of my regulatory background, my thought has been we need to build this in sort of a modular way, build it so that what we're doing is really as consistent as possible with what would be, what the regulators would have done and that includes things like trade reporting, transparency, and the like. And then, if at any point in time they get the authority that they would like to regulate it, they can have it, and they won't have to make a lot of changes. We would just hand it over. So we're not at all opposed to regulation. In fact, I think we are modeling ourselves on the regulatory process as much as possible. And I think that's also good for the market participants, because again, if regulators got the authority, you wouldn't want them to have to make a lot of changes. This should be seamless. And so we're very supportive of the work that's being done by the regulators. But we're in charge now because there's nobody else picking up the mantle.
1: Well, you did mention the CFTC's role, and these are commodities under their regulation. So as you noted, the cash market, the primary market, they have fraud and manipulation authority to the extent it's, these products are traded on a secondary market as a futures. And there are futures that are being traded and delivered, they would be fully regulated under CFTC authority. Now, your point's well taken. The CFTC may be well buttoned up on this market, but the rest of the world is not. And I think talking to regulators around the world about the legal foundation, making sure that there's good bankruptcy protection for these things, as well as establishing consistent regulatory framework for these products is essential. We know that IOSCO is pretty interested in it as well. So there's a lot of education we need to continue to do on this market. Make sure that the legal foundation is robust, good standards, as you pointed out. All
2: well, good point, Scott. Could I also say, you know, we have kept IOSCO informed as well, and that's been very important. Also, I think Because of the opacity in the market today, I'm hoping that the transparency that we bring will not only be helpful to market participants, but to the regulators as well. As you know, anti-fraud and anti-manipulation authority is exercised, but first you have to find it. (laughs) You have to find the activity. And so I do think that the transparency, again, as we all know, transparency is the great disinfectant. Hopefully the transparency here will also encourage better practices because everyone is looking.
1: Well, I think thanks to your efforts and others, the CFTC knows exactly where to look now. They know where the registries are. They know who the registries are. But the good news is I'm not finding anybody that is opposed to good high standards to make sure that this market flourishes. Now, there is another regulator out there. The SEC has recently proposed regulations on enhanced ESG disclosures for investment advisors and investment companies based on a perceived lack of uniformity and consistency, which is not untrue. (laughs) Do you think the proposed rules succeeded in preventing misleading marketing practices and helping investors make more informed decisions? And what impact might they have on the carbon market?
2: Well, I'm not sure I'm in a position to comment directly on that rulemaking. I can tell you that we commented on the climate-related disclosure rulemaking. And obviously, looking at it from the Integrity Council's perspective of voluntary carbon markets and the impact on that, I would say the principle that we applied and where we commented related to a disclosure of carbon offsets. And our view was disclosure of carbon offsets alone could actually have unintended consequences because companies could be disclosing that they're engaging in offsetting and they could make it sound like they're doing a good thing. But if there was no discussion of the quality of the offsets, you could have the unintended consequence of actually <laughs> encouraging greater greenwashing. And I think that's the prism with which I would look at these SEC rulemakings as well, relating to advisors and investment companies. There are a couple of principles that, obviously, as a former regulator, I would look at. I mean, is there standardized disclosure that would be helpful, that really would bring Meaningful transparency and provide information that is informative to the marketplace about these practices. It's important that we have not just data, but standardized data and data that informs, because there are just so many thousands of data points that one could be called upon to provide that don't really add value. So I'm assuming that a lot of what the comments were on this rulemaking goes to just that. Is this information really going to inform investment decisions? Is it going to inform decisions in an appropriate way? And will it not have unintended consequences? So that's how I would have reviewed it.
1: A lot of people are asking the same question or raising the same points because there's a lot of people that want to do the right thing, that want to disclose. They've signed up for net zero commitments and making sure that they can draw a double line under their totals and say, yeah, we've reached a zero through these mechanisms and these different tools. They'd love to be able to do that and be able to with a straight face and say, this is how we achieved it. And these are the good high standards. This is how you can audit it. It's completely transparent and good standard. So I agree with that. And we have to figure out a way to make sure that people have the right tools and investors can sort out the apples from oranges, et cetera, and make sure that they're making good informed decisions. Well, I'd like to finish up the podcast by finding out a little bit more about my guest's own journey through this process. You've led a distinguished career in the world of law and regulation, including a near decade long stint at the SEC, first as staff and then as a commissioner. Leading the ICVCM must be a very different role at a time when tackling climate change couldn't be more urgent. What have you learned along the way and what advice would you give to a young person starting out now?
2: I must say it's been an incredible privilege to be able to chair the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Markets. And it's an opportunity that I never would have imagined I would have. As you know, I was operating lead on the predecessor effort, which was the task force on scaling voluntary carbon markets. And my involvement in that came about because I was asked by Mark Carney, who, as you know, was critical in that effort, if I would take on that role. And I have to say, when he asked me to do it, I was winding down my active practice of law at Davis Polk. And so I was happy to have an important activity to look to. But this was one that I never imagined. And I did wonder at first what he was thinking, because if he was looking for someone who was an expert on climate change, he'd sort of come to the wrong place. (laughs) But what I realized over time was that we had no shortage of people who really understood the history behind this and the climate issues and the UN and the COP procedures and all that. But what we needed to bring to this was all the market principles on how to build a high integrity, liquid, transparent market that mimicked the markets that you and I are familiar with, the securities markets, the futures markets, the derivatives markets, And it was wonderful that my experience at the SEC was so relevant. I worked on the implementation of Dodd-Frank and all the derivatives rules, soup to nuts on how one regulates a market. Worked on Reg NMS, so, you know, on the uh, modernization of the national market system in the U.S. I mean, who would have thought that this actually had any applicability beyond that? And what I found was that I've been able to apply those principles to What I like to say is the most important asset class of our time. I mean, this is an existential issue that we have. And the ability and the privilege of applying that background to this effort has just been amazingly gratifying, and I'm really pleased to do it. I guess my message for young people would be be a lifelong learner. I mean, I've never thought at this point in my career I'd be learning about carbon, but it's incredibly exciting It's been a privilege to find ways to use the skills that I had throughout my career to be able to give back in some way to my community. And ultimately, in a small way, I feel like at this stage in my career, I'm trying to find a way to not only to give back, but to address some of the real challenges we have. And I guess I tell young people, have the courage to be optimistic about the future and your ability to have an impact and to potentially leave the world a little better than how you found it.
1: That's great. Best of luck on the consultation. We'll look forward to your final results and the next steps. I hope you're successful.
2: Thank you so much, Scott. And we look forward to uh, ISDA's comments and (laughs) look forward to continuing the dialogue.
0: Fantastic. Thanks for joining us. Great discussion. Lots of interesting points covered there, but I'd like to pick up briefly on the legal and regulatory framework. That's clearly another fundamental issue for the development of this market, alongside, obviously, the issue of greenwashing. Can you talk a little bit about ISDA's work here? Of course. Our focus is
1: on making sure that the evolving market has a robust legal and regulatory framework. We believe that strong legal standards are needed to ensure that consistency in the way that carbon credits are defined, and we need to have the clarity around bankruptcy and regulatory treatment in key jurisdictions as well. We've published two white papers on the topic over the past year, and the first one came out in December. It explored the key legal issues related to voluntary carbon credits and recommended steps that should be taken To further develop legal certainty in this product in certain jurisdictions around the globe. As I mentioned earlier, the CFTC has some real clarity that these are defined as commodities, but that's not the case globally. So there's some legal questions that need to be answered there. Now, the second white paper in June zeroed in on some of the specific legal and regulatory issues specifically in the U.S., including the oversight of the CFTC. And our paper recommended that CFTC should leverage its expertise in regulating commodity derivatives to ensure its oversight of the voluntary carbon market, particularly looking at fraud manipulation in the primary market and applying its full suite of authorities in the futures market, which it will. A robust legal and regulatory framework is absolutely critical. So we'll continue to work with policymakers and market
0: participants to help achieve this goal as the market develops. Great. Terrific. Thanks for that. Of course, you can download those white papers from the ISTA website as well as a whole bunch of other materials related to our ESG initiatives, including our analysis on the capital treatment of carbon trading under the Fundamental Review of the Trading Book. That, however, is all the time we have today. We'll be taking a dive into global energy prices in our next episode, so please do look out for that. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website www.isdA.org and our social media channels. See you next time.